Hello and welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor. And joining me today are Ed Smith, Head of Asset Allocation Research at Rathbones, and our Personal Finance Editor, Leonor Walters. Now, much of the talk of recent months has centred around Neil Woodford and the decision back in June to suspend dealing on his equity income fund as he tried to deal with a heightened level of investor redemptions. Leonora, it's already been quite a ride, I think it's fair to say, but uh, we're about three months on now and uh, we have another set of fresh developments. Can you take me through what's happened now? Yeah, I think the main uh, thing that's happened, and um, it's maybe slightly shocking, uh, <laughs> is uh, um, LF Woodford Equity Income, the fund which was suspended from trading on the 3rd of June, has stopped publishing its 10 largest holdings mm. every month and won't disclose these again until it resumes trading, which is expected to be in December. And this sets it apart from the vast majority of other funds available to UK private investors, as nearly all of these disclose their top 10 holdings. And it's also quite a departure from Woodford Investments Management's policy in the past. They Mm. used to publish not just the top 10 holdings, but the entire list of holdings for all their funds every month. And we stopped doing that um, I think it was like about two months ago and now they've kind of like taken this step uh, basically to um, not disclose anything uh, that LF Woodford Equity Income has. It's interesting isn't it? I mean another thing I was thinking of is uh, you know they, they tried to be very full on with the disclosure. They even in Equity Income I remember used to break out which their holdings were quoted and which were not quoted mm. and then uh, they uh, sort of took that away and it's gradually been uh, been rolled back. Um, so I suppose if you're an investor in this suspended fund, um, you want to know what's going on, that ma- might seem quite, uh, quite frustrating. But what would you say is the logic behind this, um, this decision? Well, I suppose I don't know, but um, the fund's authorised corporate director, that's Link Fund Solutions, mm. uh, says the reason they've done that is Neil Woodford is obviously currently repositioning the fund to achieve two things. He's obviously got to raise a pile of cash to yep. uh, give to those investors who want to take the money out of the fund. And he's also orientating it away from unquoted mm. and illiquid holdings to more mainstream stocks. So as he's doing this and basically selling and buying stuff, they say that if you know you have any idea of what's in the fund, um, other investors, probably institutional investors, might look to buy holdings cheaply, go for a fire sale, or they might bet on the prices falling. That's basically short selling. And there has been evidence of um, short sellers moving in on some of the holdings mm. in Woodford funds. A short selling, for anybody who doesn't know, is basically where, um, let's say, um, uh, one party, and it's usually an institution like a hedge fund, right? Mm. Uh, not just um, a regular person. Um, <laughs> as a hedge fund will take a bet on the price of an asset or stock falling rather than investing in it, which is what an investor would normally do. Now, if there's a lot of short selling, um, it's almost self-fulfilling. It can drive an asset's price further down. So bear in mind that Woodford is trying to sell holdings, trying 
pay some cash and also trying not to do it at a fire sale, you know, get some, get, get it at a fair price, decent price. You know, obviously he doesn't want a load of short sellers driving down the prices of what he's got, uh, or else he can't raise the cash. He needs to meet the redemption. So fair enough. Um, from that perspective, they don't want, you know, these hedge funds basically to, Swoop in mm, vultures, yeah. uh, short sell, and um, you know, kind of make the situation even worse. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, people bargaining down the prices or shorting um, his holdings will um, kind of have a knock-on um, effect on returns. And um, how how has the fund done recently uh, while it's been suspended in terms of performance? Not good at all. But hey, you know, what's the difference? It hasn't done well for quite a while. Um, in terms of performance between the 3rd of June and the 21st of August, um, LF Woodford equity income lost 11.15%, um, while the FTSE Olsha index rose 1.52%. So quite a differential there. Mm. And Woodford Investment Management says that there are some particular reasons for this, uh, the main one being difficulties with um, a shareholding called Burford Capital, whose share price uh, had declined sharply due to, I think, some research put out by a company called Muddy Waters Research, which basically dig the dirt on certain shares. Um, and it also had uh, a write-down on its holding an unquoted cold fusion technology company, Industrial Heat. Yep, yep. The other funds haven't done brilliantly either. I mean, Woodford Patient Capital Trust, for example... Over the uh, three months to the 29th of August fell 17%, while the FTSE all share was flat, aka hasn't fallen or risen. That said, Woodford Patient Capitalist is very different to the FTSE all yes. share. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so uh, I guess looking on the, um, the brighter side, perhaps, is uh, the equity income funds on track to reopen in, I think Link said early December. They did say early December. Link says it still is, but, you know, obviously, they're not showing holdings. We don't know what's going on. So all we can do is take Link at their word. You know, it's... Uh, mm. Mm. I guess we'll see in the next uh, 28 day updates. Mm. Okay, thanks for that. Do look at this week's funds coverage for more on the latest Woodford news. We also look at what I guess is a, a related issue, uh, which is how you can spot when a fund might have become too large and the consequences this can have for you as an investor. Now, Neil Woodford might be dealing with uh, some pretty hefty liquidity issues, but he has also been known for having quite an upbeat view in recent years on the UK economy. This is at a time when Brexit uncertainty has led many investors to decide to steer clear of um, UK equities. But uh, obviously this this week we've had some fairly big news uh, on the Brexit front. The Prime Minister plans to suspend Parliament uh, as he looks to move ahead with some form of departure from the EU by his deadline of uh, the end of October. So, Ed, as I uh, alluded to, when it comes to asset allocation, um, many investors, uh, like politicians, like families, like friends, have been pretty torn uh, on the Brexit front and uh, whether UK equities represent a bargain or a bit of a, a trap does this latest development change the equation? Well, if you are someone who believes that <laughs> uh, the government's move is a usurpation of Parliament's sovereignty, and yep. I say if I'm not judging, <laughs> don't send me hate mail and certainly not Dave and Leonora, you may be interested to note that there's a very deep literature linking the quality of a country's 
democratic institutions and rates of growth, cost of capital, return mm. on investment. Yeah. But let's be honest, markets aren't that long-termist. What does it mean in the short term? It, it means that the risks of no deal have, have, have gone up. And whether or not you think no deal is likely to be in the best interests of the country economically in the long run, that's only ever going to be achieved in the very long run. And in the short term, mm. we think uh, a at least a mild contraction is likely in the event of a no deal. And over the medium term, uh, businesses' costs of doing business, costs of trading go up. So that could change that equation. Companies that previously looked cheap in light of a no deal, may no longer look cheap once you adjust down those rates of growth or those or those profit margins. That said, it shouldn't change the equations for companies that de- derive most of their earnings overseas that just happen to be listed on the London Stock Exchange. So we're talking sort of half of the FTSE 100 or something. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see the no deal probabilities. Some people are now looking at something like 35% likelihood. Um, I guess for uh, for investors, um, UK investors, many of them are still, you know, quite fond of UK equities. Uh, that might be because of the classic kind of home bias. You know, you like your local markets almost, or because of the fact that there's a decent yield. You know, it's still yeah. something like four and a half percent, maybe slightly less. Um, if you're still kind of having a decent allocation to UK stocks, what do you now need to be aware of? Yeah, that's a great question. I think you need to be aware of the sectors that are most sensitive to that uncertainty mm. uh, around no deal and the future uh, of the UK economy. So economically, it's uh, uh, it's business investment and construction that's most sensitive to uncertainty. Um, so you might want to think about uh, avoiding stocks that are particularly geared into those uh, areas, and just in terms of how the market tends to react to, to 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 the economy and doubts about the economy. Well, it's general retail, it's construction, it's leisure goods, most financial services other than life, no, non life insurers. Uh, that are particularly sensitive to the UK business cycle, mm. uh, and it's you know, your usual your utilities, your healthcare, um, your non-life insurers that are that are less sensitive. And I guess on a, a similar note, um, a lot of the kind of Brexit reaction we've seen so far from investors has been coming through via sterling over the last mm. three years. Um, a big way to kind of think about uh, how you're affected by that is via kind of market cap. Right. Um, as we mentioned, FTSE 100, you have some, a lot of companies that will benefit from um, sterling coming down. Um, how should investors be sort of considering their market cap exposure? Yeah, well, I mean, the sterling conundrum makes it all the more difficult. As as you say, like if, if we did have a no deal and, and sterling uh, were to fall, well, usually that should benefit the overseas mm. uh, earners, but then would it actually lead overseas investors just to sell the the UK even more than they're doing already. It, it's, it's difficult yeah, to yeah. call. I think uh, um, thinking about market cap, though, um, regardless of Brexit, we're advocating tilts to large uh, capitalization companies mm-hmm. anywhere in the world. Uh, and that's because um, we're undergoing quite a pronounced slowdown in economic activity and when that occurs, that tends to mean the cyclical 
um, higher beta plays underperform those more defensive lower beta plays. And mm. the market cap spectrum, that usually means large cap outperforms uh, smaller cap. And the earnings underlying the FTSE 100, you know, the, the, the UK large cap index, well, they're among the least sensitive to the business cycle of any major bourse um, anywhere in the world. Um, so, so we think there's there's good sort of non-Brexit reasons to to, to favour favour large cap as well as potentially mm. some Brexit related ones. Yeah. Okay. That's quite interesting. Um, I guess on a related note, uh, let's talk a bit more generally about equities. Um, they've had a really good 2019, sure. even by, you know, half a year in, many of the kind of mainstream markets have had double digit returns, which is phenomenal. Um, but obviously there's a lot to be concerned about as well. You've got the trade war continuing to rumble on. Yeah. Um, you've got another kind of yield curve inversion, which makes investors very nervous. Um, what does this mean for kind of equity investors and would you say that now makes equities kind of less attractive than they previously were? Yeah, I mean, this is something we're thinking long and hard about. It's taken up most of my time <laughs> this year. Um, I mean, the global economy, as I said, is undergoing a slowdown. Uh, in fact, it's undergoing its most pronounced slowdown since the financial crisis. Mm. Now, the million-dollar question, or, well, actually, it's the trillion-dollar question these days, <laughs> isn't it, is... is is this another mid-cycle slowdown or is this the final slowdown that the presages slowdown. the yeah. recession? Yeah, Is it the beginning of the end or is mm. it just a, a mid-cycle blip? Um, now, our econometric analysis and our qualitative tyre-kicking at our investment committee meetings cannot yet conclude that this is more than a mid-cycle slowdown. And so we don't think stocks are mm. unattractive Um Although I might add the word yet to that, <laughs> to, to that sentence. Classic caveat. Um, okay, then. So let's turn to this week. We've had um, some reports of UBS Wealth Management, who run a lot of money. Right. Um, apparently have uh, perhaps a slightly different view in that they've moved to recommending their clients go underweight equities. Um, this is the first time they've done so since uh, 2012, when okay. we had the... Um, height of the Eurozone debt crisis. So I guess that represents quite a big um, change in stance. Um, if someone were to take their advice and kind of pull back on their equity exposures, what do they need to be aware of in terms of the kind of trade-off that they're, they're taking? Yeah, well, I think let's frame it um, back in the context of that trillion-dollar question. Mm. Uh, timing the beginning and it end of a mid-cycle slowdown is very difficult and you risk eroding returns trying yep. to trying to do so. But if UBS have moved underweight because they think this is the beginning of the end, then that's a lot more justifiable. But I would note that the dangers of moving too early um, could also could mean that uh, investors miss out on some returns for potentially quite a long period of time. So, for example, the yield curve, which is getting a lot of attention at the moment, mm. um, that has inverted on average 14 to 15 months before the start of a recession. And that means that it's inverted around about 10 months before the peak in equity markets. That's quite, and that's quite a long period of time. And there's a lot of variation within that average as, as well. Sometimes it's, mm. it's even longer. 
So what we try to do is find investment strategies that uh, work across a number of potential scenarios mm. you know, when when we don't have um, you know, very high conviction on one particular scenario. And that's why we have high conviction at the moment on our on favoring defensiveness and low beta plays rather than cyclical and yeah. high beta yeah. plays because they tend to work in that final phase of the of the uh, of the business cycle and during those mid cycle slowdowns. Mm. It's interesting. Some people say you can uh, almost make the best returns in those fairly late cycle stages. So potentially, yeah. I mean, yeah. you've seen episodes of of uh, natural resource stocks, for example, really generate huge returns in mm. those final final stages. Um, obviously, each stage is, is is different, but there's certainly the potential there. And um, apart from uh, sort of taking a defensive approach within your equity exposure um, from a, a broader multi-asset perspective. What options do you have available to you um, just as, you know, in terms of defensive plays? Yeah, um, well, we want to look for earning streams, you know, whether they're from the equity fixed income or, you know, uh, other markets that are, that have uh, low sensitivities or low betas, if you like, to to the business cycle. We've discussed that a bit. Mm. And I would also encourage asset allocators not to misuse valuation. Yeah. So I think, uh, in fact, I recently wrote a, a, a piece on our own website um, that explains why the price to earnings ratio is possibly the most misunderstood metric in all of mm. uh, investing. And it's often used as a justification for not going into certain sort of defensive markets, perhaps, when you really need them. Yeah, the, the, the PE ratio, you've got to bear in mind that it doesn't have any implications. Oh, it doesn't contain any information for where markets are heading over the next 12 months. Mm. Uh, if you buy countries based on uh, having a low PE ratio, sell the ones with a high PE ratio, you'd have lost money pretty much year after year since 2002. It's even worse for sector allocation. You'd have lost money for 40 years. PE ratios are only useful when you're trying to choose a company uh, relative to its peers in its industry yeah. sector. Then it can be very powerful. But you've got to bear that in mind, you know, as from an asset allocation point of view, don't misuse some of these valuation metrics and use that and don't use them as a justification for not earning some for not owning some of these defensive earning streams. What sort of metrics would you kind of turn to instead or alongside it? Um well if you do want to bring in some valuation metrics priced to cash flow and cash flow based metrics do tend to have a better outcome than than the PE ratio. Mm. But I would yeah really you know dispense with valuation entirely making sure that you're not paying silly multiples and just look at you know uh, return on invested capital you know which has a really great track record of of delivering superior market performance um uh low leverage um solid gross profit margins mm. okay in that case what do you think then of um i mean this is a very valuations driven idea but um some people are getting concerned about so-called safe haven assets right um looking expensive yeah. so gold has done very well for yeah, example yeah. government yes, bonds yeah. yeah um what do you think of that argument um 
I have more. I have some sympathy for 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 that. But yeah, we live in a lower growth world where there seems to be a higher demand for savings than there does for investment, and that's mm. going to mean that interest rates are naturally lower. And so, don't think that because bond yields are low today, and they used to be around about five or six percent, that that yeah. means they're incredibly overvalued. But even if you uh, sort of try and compute some sort of natural level for a government bond yields, today's actual yields still look, you know, quite pricey and uh, and safe haven assets, as you said, don't look that attractive. Um, it may investors may need to make more tactical use of cash. So we did some analysis on sort of constructing portfolios hypothetically in the fifties and sixties when interest rates were a lot lower than they were um, uh, throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and, and more like where they were, where they are, not quite today, but you know, in that ballpark. Mm. And in the 50s and 60s, holding cash rather than bonds led to higher sharp ratios, higher risk-adjusted returns and so investors may need to make more tactical use of 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 cash now i know that some investors don't like using cash especially Mm. if they've got to pay a fee on it or you know if they're holding on a platform or or with an investment manager um but yeah we're not saying that you should uh own this uh, have a load of cash on your books for the long term just make more tactical use of it and withdrawing cash from your investment portfolio means that you are giving up the option value embedded in being able to redeploy it um in a timely manner mm. take it out and put it into your repay your mortgage or something it's difficult to take yeah. that back out and put it back into stocks right so it's that, that dry powder in case uh, exactly yeah Okay, thanks for that. Was, that was really interesting. Thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure. That brings us to the end of today's show. Do have a look at this week's Investors Chronicle or the websites at uh, www.investorschronicle.co.uk for more on the Woodford suspension and how to see if a fund has taken on too much money. Thanks for listening and have a good weekend. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.